welcome back, Calm listeners. This is Methodical Millions, where you can better your future and better yourself. Cal, you covered a topic last week briefly, which was DAI, D-A-I. And I want to go a little bit in depth because it was a collateralized stablecoin. And after talking about USDT, I feel like if we talk about this for a little bit, I'll actually better understand what a stablecoin means, maybe with some examples. So I guess we'll start off by saying, after doing my own research, DAI seems to be very clever. At face value, it sounds like just another crypto, but it actually is true to Ethereum in the fact that it's got smart contracts. And the most fascinating point I'll open with is that it's actually its own economic system. So how money moves and change hands has different incentive structures. And the overarching way it becomes a stablecoin is through arbitrage. So the premise of this currency is to keep it pegged to the US dollar. And over time, if one exchange has died trading at 90 cents on a dollar, people will quickly buy it up and then resell it at a dollar. They'll make a quick 10%. So there's an economic incentive for people to scoop up those gains. And I think part of the reason why it's quite clever is because it is essentially decentralized and there's no bank saying, okay, well, let's buy and sell here. It's actually people doing it. And with that said, Cal, what are your thoughts on it? I agree with you. It is quite smart, I find. It's different than your typical stablecoin like USDT or USDC, where it's directly pegged to the dollar, which it is. But the beauty of DAI is that it is over collateralized. The meaning of that is basically one DAI coin equals to one US dollar. But there is extra collateral, other cryptocurrencies that would be used in order to borrow those DAI coins. So you can borrow and lend DAI coins, you can save them and maybe earn interest on them, which is kind of similar to that. You can use it for your own portfolio to hedge against other less stable coins. The fact that you can use other cryptocurrencies as collateral to borrow DAI coin is what's fascinating to me. So based on the research I've done, it looks like it is just Ether. It's got to use ERC-20 in order for it to work. So the collateral obligation, anything more than 150% is the rule. So whoever created DAI said, okay, how do we prevent this currency from going to zero, which is a big risk factor. So you especially don't want that in a stable coin. So the collateral requirements to prevent liquidation, which is almost like getting margin called on the stock market, is 150%. So you have to have 1.5, the amount of the ETH over DAI. And there's so many nuanced things here. There's a penalty. You lose 13% if you get margin called. And there's all these incentive structures in the code designed to encourage people not to do that and to have a system that people follow and works. So the genius of Bitcoin was that someone is mining them. And once those coins are mined, they technically can't be destroyed. There's no destruction or burning properties into that. It was very primitive. Whereas with something like DAI, there's all these cool things embedded. So the whole idea is you can buy up cheap DAI. And if you find DAI very cheap, you can actually even borrow DAI at a dollar and then repay it at 90 cents or 85 cents, 
when we talked before about people creating rules in decentralized finance, this is actually a great example of that, where the whole system is designed around money moving and where can you make opportunities, making 5-10%, flipping money and converting from DAI to Ether and back. And my understanding is there are some requirements. You got to have at least 20 DAI in order to open a vault and a vault is where your DAI will sit. And I'm pretty sure it can actually be held in a MetaMask or Trust Wallet. We're going to have to do that. So I'm going to make sure we put some instructions in the show notes on how to buy some DAI. Just to add to that, Ether is the main crypto that's used as collateral in this case, but there are other currencies that are used. You can also use BAT as a flate USDC because of what happened in the crash of 2020. When crypto lost about 50% of its value, it really put DAI under a stress test and caused quite a bit of havoc in that sense. But basically, these are the three tokens that you can use as collateral when you borrow DAI. It is a bit more complex to explain. It is based on a smart contract, as you mentioned, John, it's on the Ethereum platform. But how do I borrow DAI, right? And what happens in the process? So I would take a thousand DAI. For me to do that, I have to give in a collateral of 1,500, which is a 150%. Let's take Ethereum as an example. So I'll take $1,500 worth of Ethereum and use it as collateral. I will borrow that die. When and if, let's say I return that die, as you mentioned, the process is as normal. There's a transaction fee and then the die basically gets taken away from you. Now, if the value of the collateral drops to below that 150% mark, what happens is your collateral would then move to what they call the keepers. The keepers are those who basically have the DAI coin and it'll get auctioned off to them. So they will auction the Ether to those keepers and the highest bidder would basically take that Ethereum and will have the DAI coins and would move it back to what they call the maker vault. That is how it gets rebalanced and how it's controlling the peg of the value of the die. And then that process, after it gets auctioned, there's, as you mentioned, the 13% fee that will get charged to you when you lose the collateral. It is quite interesting on how it functions, and it seems to be very useful and very effective, with the exception of what happened in terms of the crash. I think it was March 21st, 2020, when all the markets crashed because the effects of COVID, and I think Bitcoin and Ethereum lost about 50% of its value that day. And that's when DAI has seen a surplus of half a million dollars worth of collateral to under collateralized by about $4 million. And a lot of people suffer losses there. What does that mean, actually, that DAI ended up being under collateralized? That almost sounds like it was broken. And did the code get updated to include the USDC? Which makes sense because if crypto is too volatile, you have cases where the system doesn't work. So let's say you had 150% in Ethereum, but Ethereum drops half its value overnight. Then all of a sudden you don't have 150%. Is that essentially what happened? You have more like 75? That's pretty much exactly what happened. To explain to our listeners, so again, DAI is the stable coin. So the purpose of it is to have a stability where cryptocurrencies are usually not that stable. They're quite volatile. I believe it's because it's a growing asset class. There's a lot of speculation around it. There's a lot of uncertainty around it, but because it's new and growing quite fast, you see this kind of volatility. So the stablecoin aspect, one of which is DaiCoin, supposed to give that a medium of exchange where you can trade or get in or out of coins in a more stable manner. So it has an appeal as well as the lending and borrowing. So what happened here is 
at the time, it seems that DAI was using Ethereum and BAT as collateral. So if you wanted to borrow, as you mentioned, you had to have 150% to provide as collateral when you borrow your DAI. What happened is that day, the crypto market crashed about 50%. So all these people who were borrowing DAI got under collateralized. They had 150% or more in collateral. And then all of a sudden, it dropped to effectively 75% of collateral. So the vaults automatically liquidated all the Ethereum because the majority of the collateral was in Ethereum at the time. All these maker vaults that hold the Ethereum as collateral goes to the keepers. So the ones who work on balancing the value of the DAI. When it comes to the liquidation process, that's where the maker vault goes to start a liquidating auction. Now, because it happened so quickly, effectively overnight, the system was overwhelmed. So first, the keepers couldn't keep up. And also, it seems that the gas, which is to help with the transactional fees, got very, very high during that period. So a lot of these keepers weren't able to actually participate in these auctions. It didn't make sense. They were very expensive. And also, the system was overwhelmed. This gave a handful of keepers access to auction on these Ethereum. And what happened is effectively the net advantage of the sale of these coins were effectively zero and about $4 million worth of Ether was effectively sold for no dollars. So people were able to take $4 million in that scenario because they're keepers and they're able to keep it for next to nothing. So this caused a lot of chaos and has shown a part or a weakness in the system of DAI and what they call the maker token holders. So part of the DAI system, or what they call the MakerDAO protocol, the maker token holders, they can decide to vote on proposals and on how to improve the protocol and things like that. So they took a vote to add USDC as one of the collateral tokens that you can use besides Ethereum and BAT. That was added later on, and it was approved and accepted. And that should help create a bit more stability as well, because now you have something that's, again, pegged to the U.S. dollars as well that's used as collateral here. So in the event of the crash of Ethereum or other coins that could be also used as collateral, and once that was approved, that's when they were able to recoup some of these losses, but there's still an class action lawsuit against the maker of the coin. Yeah, it's always a tricky area when there's innovation. And the best analogy I'll use is if you have a seesaw or a weight scale balance, the pivot point in the center is going to be your US dollar or US dollar equivalent. And then on the right, you'll have growth. High growth is usually very intense, or you'll have an immense crash or cool down. And the whole idea behind growth assets are that they're not stable. They're inherently unstable, almost like hydrogen being very unstable, a gas. That's just the nature of hydrogen. So the nature of crypto is that it can be unstable and especially Bitcoin that don't have these standardization elements we talked about, they're not really something you can control. It's why I like the approach of owning something early and owning it forever because you don't have to worry about fluctuations. Do you own 12 extra money on Tesla or eight extra money, which is not a huge deal, but to the person who bought in at 12X at that valuation, all of a sudden they lose 40%. That would really suck. 
the volatility is always depending on your frame of reference in terms of how resilient you can be in weathering those crashes. And that's why a fundamental belief in going long something and you're in early enough pays off. So if you're going to be long Apple or Amazon from 20 years ago, your holdings are less price sensitive. It may fluctuate by a high amount, but you're not losing your whole portfolio. So let's talk about gas fees for a second. I've heard of this with Bitcoin as well. The fee for transacting and sending crypto can get high. The benefit of fast transactions around the world is compelling. You have a relatively low fee for moving a million or $10 million around the world. But where the model breaks in these edge cases is exactly where the economic incentive goes away. If you hold $20 in Bitcoin and it costs you $50 to move it, that Bitcoin's abandoned. It's not going to be touched. I remember in 2017, Bitcoin was abandoned for a lot of people. Ethereum as well. And these gas fees, I think, are a huge problem that way too. So I'm just wondering how these gas fees were avoided. Do the keepers have to pay gas fees? I don't see them getting $4 million of Ether without having to pay those fees. I would assume that's the whole point of it. Most of them weren't able to pay those gas fees. The few that were able to were still able to get the Ethereum for effectively nothing and pay those fees and still be ahead of the game. Seems that that's what happened. Let's say there are a thousand of those keepers worldwide, maybe 950 of them weren't able to access that. And out of the few that were, not all of them were even able to capitalize on the majority of it. It could be even one person who took all that 4 million for all we know. They were able to weather the crash and pay those gas fees and ended up being ahead of the game later on. So yes, you're right. That's the whole point is because of the gas fees, the overwhelming of the system in the sense of liquidating all the Ethereum that was used as collateral, that has really caused the domino effect. And it's a good exercise in taking a measured approach. So we've talked about that before. If you're going all in at one moment in time into crypto and you have money that's leveraged to do that, so you want to accelerate your growth, back to that balancing weight or that seesaw analogy, things could go very right or they can go very wrong. And it's a good way to explain risk and how to think about growing your wealth long term. Because if you were walking up a mountain and as you walked up this mountain, you got wealthier, but one out of every hundred steps, it falls through and then you fall down and you die. Most people would say that's too risky. The chance of becoming wealthy doesn't outweigh the consequences. This is why having a strategy and understanding the risks is important. And maybe you realize that by taking two steps at a time, you've cut your risk in half and maybe you can put your foot on the step first and see if it's going to fall through. And there's all these types of things that people develop, such as price movement indicators and theories around investing, because there has to be a way to navigate it in order to do well. You have to have a cohesive theory, a belief around why Bitcoin's worth something. And even the biggest funds go under. And we've talked about Archegos, there's famous hedge funds, I think in the late 90s, early 2000s, that was over leveraged. And it only takes one wrong move, no matter how professional you are, to run into trouble. And it happens in real estate. I've heard so many stories of rates in the 80s going to 17%. And then people essentially get liquidated in terms of their ability to pay. So this whole liquidation idea, if you can't service your debt or your collateral goes away, it is a risk factor. And banks will come knocking and whether it's centralized or decentralized, 
those are the rules of the game. So it's a great episode to cover those things. If there's a white paper on dye, we should throw it up in the show notes. We'll definitely do that. Cal, any last minute thoughts on dye that we haven't covered? Some good pieces of info we can share with our listeners. Just a very general piece of advice, as you mentioned, John, there's risks with everything, even though it is a stable coin and it's in the name that it's expected to be stable. Always take caution. And there's nothing wrong with the system. It's really at its infancy. Crypto is very, very new to us. Even though it's been around for over 10 years now, it's still very, very new. The world is just exploring it and maximize the benefits of it. But like I mentioned, just take extra caution when you get into any of this. Like you mentioned, plan ahead. And that way, things like this hopefully wouldn't happen to anyone again. And lessons have been learned. And even the system has improved since last year, since the crash has happened. So there is progress. There is there is a learning curve with this. But just always make sure you look ahead and plan ahead before making any decisions. Yeah. So just to summarize, it depends on the context. If you want to spend a dollar and a dollar is like buying a pack of gum, it's not a big deal. It's a great way to buy into something and then make an inference on which way the price is going to move and why it's going to do well. And what I find is that when you own a position, even if it's very small, you start to research it more and you start to feel invested. So some of the tricks a lot of the pros recommend is invest small, but pretend you invested a million dollars. Pretend you invest your life savings in terms of how much research you're going to do and how you're going to approach the topic. And when you're passionate about something, especially when a space is new, you will get smarter than 90, 95% of the people out there, even if they do it for a living. How many times have you seen, Cal, you mentioned this, stock traders who don't research as much as you do or things like that. And now you're still seeing the GME saga all over the news, AMC mooning and Reddit versus Wall Street is still a big deal. Some of these Redditors do such in-depth analysis and some of it's as a joke on purpose, but they're paying attention to it. It's about how much time you spend learning about the space. And that's the unique trait about humanity, which is if you can learn and grow, anything's possible. Any wealth creation, overcome any obstacles. And it's just about how you frame things. So instead of thinking an end of the world scenario, think about what do I do next? And how do I approach it now? What can I do to innovate in the space? So if a system is broken, people came up with adding USDC in the mix in terms of collateral. Awesome, Cal. Glad we covered that. It gives some info into the whole DeFi movement. I love how much of an economic system it is, how it's almost self-regulating and these rules can be created. People can be less reliant on centralized banks for borrowing and lending and making money. So with that said, let's wrap up today's episode. Thank you for listening to another episode of Methodical Millions, where you can better your future and better yourself. Thanks, everyone.